Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the second season of the Northern Spin Podcast. I'm Michael Taylor, and I'm joined, as ever, by the cheeky chappy from Chorley, or the banter king of Kent, depending on how northern he is on any particular day, Chris Maguire. Are we... <laughs> that doesn't work. It doesn't work. That does not work. It didn't work last time. There was something about dialects on the radio this week about um, which expressions that kind of regionally identify a place. Is that your? No, uh, that doesn't is work. Is that your Chorley one? I'd like to apologise. I'd like to apologise to the people of the north. Um, yeah. Now, who would have thought Michael would be back for a second season? Not me for sure. Um, it's been another mega week in the life that is the Northern Spin. <clears throat> not only did you appear on BBC Radio Lancashire to discuss the autumn statement, despite the fact I live a lot closer. Closer. But last week's episode was our second most listened to podcast, so we must be doing something right. I think so, yeah. We're, we're the faces of Northern Spin, but it's fair to say that we couldn't do any of this without the production team from What Media and our sponsors from Oscar Technology. Well, we visited there a couple of weeks ago, actually. They're an amazing business. Um, they employ 90 people here in Manchester. They employ 200 people globally, a turnover of 45 million. They've just opened their fifth office in the US, got plans to open elsewhere around the world as well. Last week, Oscar were highly commended in the GR Awards in the Best Employer Brand category. So not only has it been a good week for the Northern Spin, it's been a good week for Oscar Technology. So well done to them. Excellent. Now, last week, um, you actually, it wasn't last week, it was the week before, you outed me you outed me publicly on this podcast by saying that I left a football match early. Well, today, Michael Taylor, I'm outing you. Oh, what have I done? Well, last week, you took part in a roundtable with MPs, including Jonathan Reynolds and Lucy Powell, Digital Supremo, Katie Gallagher, and several entrepreneurs. And you posted a photo on your Twitter account. How long you've got that Twitter account for, nobody knows. And you're either three foot taller than everyone else, or you're standing on a chair. You are the new John Terry. Hey, I merely pushed the most important people to the foreground, but I didn't want it not to be recorded that I was in fact there and involved in the round table. And, you know, let's talk about the substance of it. I contributed to it. If I hadn't, if I just turned up at the end for the photograph, then I'd take the John Terry comment on the chin, but I did actually take part in it. See, I want to come back to that later because I think uh, we're going to talk about the fact that Labour's positioning itself to be the next government in waiting. And I think that round table is relevant to that. But I want to talk to you about the autumn statement as well. A couple of things caught my eye over the weekend. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer has announced he'll abolish the House of Lords if he becomes Prime Minister. And there's growing speculation that the government is eyeing up a closer relationship with the EU by considering a Swiss-style relationship. I don't know if that means you get free Toblerone, but the government have denied this. What are your thoughts, Michael? I think there's two things going on here. We'll come to Labour in a moment. I think the government are floating ideas. They see the economic rationale of having a different trading relationship with our closest trading partners in Europe. And it just makes economic sense. We've got very prag a very pragmatic chancellor and presumably a very pragmatic prime minister in Rishi Sunak. And clearly a hard Brexit does not work for our economy. It is an absolute pup. Anybody can see this. It's as plain as the nose on your face and they are exploring all ways. And what's already happened is you've got the Daily Mail, the Daily Express. You know, they want they, their core gammon vote desperately, desperately just wants to cling on to this ridiculous notion of Brexit and what it means. And the whole thing's falling apart before their very eyes. Um, but on to Labour. Yeah, I think it's... Um, this is a piece of work that Gordon Brown's been commissioned of, and, and I've, I've given some evidence to the Commission on the Constitution. One of the things it's recommending is a more federal structure for the UK, but it's 
But Gordon Brown has intrinsically linked it to the economic outcomes and the fact that the country does not work with its current London dominance and that something needs to be done. And the thing that a lot of the newspapers have picked up on, because Keir Starmer's done some big set-piece interviews, notably with The Times, they have picked up on this idea about the abolition of the House of Lords, which has arisen out of Gordon Brown's constitutional review. Yeah, I've got a take on both these, and I actually think it's a good move from Sir Keir Starmer and actually Rishi Sunak, both of them. I think from the Labour point of view, um, the idea that um, he wants to abolish the House of Lords makes perfect sense. There's a lot of unhappiness about Boris Johnson appointing his uh, cronies yeah. and giving them peerages. Yeah. So he's creating a clear dividing line to say, actually, we don't want nothing to do with that. Uh, so I think that makes sense. I also think that, that, that the idea of dropping it and seeing if he gets a reaction is a good move. In terms of this Swiss-style relationship with the EU, what you're seeing is more and more people of influence uh, and, uh, um, you know, and Piers Morgan accepting that Brexit wasn't the silver bullet that the supporters claimed. You just look at the stats. I mean, GDP would be 4% higher if we'd not left the EU. We've got a labour shortage. The Brexit bus that promised the NHS £350 million a week has clearly stalled. I don't know where it's parked, but we can't see it. Uh, rather than, than take control of our borders, which was really fundamentally what Brexit was all about, more than 40,000 migrants have crossed the channel to the UK this year, and that figure's rising. So we know Brexit won't be reversed. It can't be. It'd be political suicide. But I think what you're seeing is that it was missold. And I think what you'll see is somebody like Risa Sunak is a bit more pragmatic than Boris Johnson saying, you know what, we just need to water down some bits to make it more palatable and to make it more workable. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that, that's a fair comment. That It becomes clearer, doesn't it, by the day that the option of staying in the single market or in the customs union was just... It was there for, for everybody to embrace. Yeah. Why we needed to go down the hard Brexit route, for having left the institutions of the EU and lose the economic benefits, I will never know. There was a guy on Question Time last week who said, I want to trade with Europe in my business. It makes no sense for me to tra trade with Australia and New Zealand. You know, Liz Trusset was the, was the Foreign Secretary and the International Trade Minister doing these deals and posing with Union Jack umbrellas. Just... Honestly, I think we've been sold an absolute pup on Brexit. Well, the big uh, event last week was the Autumn Statement, and we're going to try and put our northern spin on that. Um, for those people who didn't watch the Autumn Statement, I will summarise in a short story that I've written. The UK is in recession. It will last for more than a year. Living standards will plummet. Taxes will rise. And public spending will drop. We're all in it together at the end. Is that a fair take? <sighs> I don't think we are all in it together, no. Um, I think spreading some of the tax burden onto people who can afford it who earn, earn over 125 grand a year, that they'll be paying a little bit more. But I think it's really squeezed people in the middle. It's it's um, it's made the dream of home, home ownership even more distant for our young people, uh, increasing rents. Um, I don't know where new houses are going to be built. I just I just absolutely despair at the lack of vision that was um, that was displayed in the autumn statement, um, really patching up what is a dire dire economic situation. I went out on Saturday. It's my wife's birthday, so we booked the Indian restaurant at the last minute. Happy birthday, Happy Leah. birthday to Leah, 36. When we looked at the bill, there was a, a cost on there that we didn't recognise. So I went to the, uh, the owner. I said, I'm sorry, mate, is that a service charge? He said, no. He said, we've put all our prices up by 15% because of the costs have gone up so much. In fact, there's a notice on the door as you walk in, which we didn't see. Uh, I went, um, my daughter was back from university yesterday, so we went temping bowling. A game of temping bowling was £33, £11 each. 
And I said to him, I'm sure that's gone up. So I went, I said, how much has it gone up from? He said, it was eight pound a game. It's gone up to 10, now it's gone up to 11. So what you're seeing is people are going to make decisions on their discretionary spends. In terms of the um, autumn statement last week, I think compared to the folly of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, it was much more grown up, but the damage has been done. Jeremy Hunt's promise to deliver the, quote, core Northern Powerhouse Rail wasn't a surprise, but it's bad news for Bradford, which won't get his promise statement. Hunt, um, I think like Hunt tried to, you know, drift into some partisan politics. So he spoke about the brilliant Tory mayors of West Midlands and Teesside. Um, but what interested me was the announcement of a single departmental style settlement at the next spending review for Greater Manchester Combined Authority and West Midlands Combined Authority. Now, I looked at what Andy Burnham said. He said he was encouraged by the Chancellor's commitment to a new devolution deal for the city region. What did you think on that? Yeah, I think a lot of public sector teams, um, either working for combined authorities or local councils, have been exhausted by the number of bids that they have to write for levelling up fund, towns fund, northern powerhouse funds, and not getting it because only a certain number can get it. They've created this culture of always competing for uh, crumbs from the table without any kind of strategic vision. It's always been inextricably, inextricably linked to um, short-term electoral uh, outcomes. One of the greatest examples of that is, is Cheadle being part of the Towns Fund, a suburb of Stockport that doesn't meet any of the criteria that it was originally set up for. And, and I think single pot funding for the people who know how money should be invested wisely locally is is a, is a really is a real step forward. Um, so there's a, so that's why our metro mayors of in in the West Midlands and uh, and, and Greater Manchester have, have welcomed this. It's probably worth mentioning this now actually before we go to an interval. But we've got a Northern Spin podcast extra this week, and uh, it's amazing. Nicola Headlam, she was the chief civil servant in the Northern Powerhouse for a year. She's very outspoken. She now works for Red Flag Alert, which is a Manchester-based tech company. She's a chief economist. She knows what she's talking about, and she uses this term gaslighting doesn't she and we were talking about the autumn statement and we're being sold things that clearly aren't true so mm -hmm. when you heard that northern statement there was almost two statements wasn't there there was the one for the here and now and there was the one for what's going to happen when the general election takes place and there was almost an acceptance that the conservative party have lost the next general election and all the difficult decisions are going to be left to the labor government when they win would that be fair yes I, I literally can't put it better than that, Chris. Yeah, yeah. And then it, you know, she was also saying that when you look back on the last 10 years, and we were talking about the Northern Powerhouse Tour, and if you don't listen to this podcast, honestly, you know, when the podcast extra comes out on Thursday, you'll, keep you'll plugging, understand. Keep plugging. It's absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But, but what she was talking about was the last 10 years. So she spent the last 20 years of her life committed to the Northern Powerhouse in one way or another through Even academia. Even before it was called the Northern absolutely. Powerhouse. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah through academia originally, and then she got the job as a civil servant. And she shares this amazing story about Boris Johnson at uh, giving a speech in 2019 at an event you were in in Rotherham as well. And they're just, although she was very, she's praising of George Osborne, this wasn't a party political point she was making, but she was just saying that the last 10 years under successive leaders, they just haven't, they haven't been committed to the Northern Powerhouse. No, honestly, I've said this before on this podcast, what can they actually claim in the 12 years that the Conservatives have led this country, what can they genuinely claim has been a major step forward for our country? Yeah? And what about Northern Powerhouse Rail and the watered-down version? You spoke about it on BBC Radio Lancashire this week in the core. Yeah, that word core is doing a lot of hard work, isn't it, there? Um, so Bradford's not going to be part of the expanded rail network. There isn't going to be an expansion of Platform 15 at Manchester Piccadilly Station. 
which means that there's still going to be these horrendous bottlenecks around the Oxford Road corridor and um, onto Piccadilly Station. We, the magazine that I used to edit that you you took over from me, Chris, Northwest Business Insider, we actually had a campaign going back to 20, 2008 about the Manchester hub, and then it became the Northern hub. And it was about opening this bottleneck around Piccadilly Station. And it's and honestly, this um, the Northern Powerhouse Rail is not going to alleviate that problem yeah shocking it's genuinely shocking they've actually made the problem worse by only doing half of it by building the Ordsal cord which allows trains to come from piccadilly around to victoria and up to yorkshire but you came you come from stockport on the train this morning you don't know if your train's going to run in well the i morning. came from rose hill marple and i tell you what i used to get that train every day when i used to commute into manchester and there must have been 10 people on it 10 people because people have got no faith so they've made other arrangements and it really does worry me that that uh, that, that train service is going to be eventually cut through lack of usage yeah and, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy doesn't it because yeah. they can turn around and say if you don't use it you'll lose it yeah but it, i mean it filled up as it went through hyde and uh, guide bridge but um honestly it really did uh, scream to me that there needs to be an upgrade in that line as well or even turning it into metrolink well, we've got a lot to talk about on this show. We're going to go for a short break. And that's the end of the first part of Northern Spin. Welcome back to the uh, latest episode of the Northern Spin podcast. In a minute, we're going to talk about the financial pressure our local councils are under. But I was watching Politics Northwest on Sunday, as is my want, and they had four of the candidates for the City of Chester by-election on December the 1st. If you want to see the full list of candidates, you can on the BBC website. It was prompted by the resignation of Labour MP Chris uh, Matheson. Now, there'll also be by-elections in West Lancashire following the resignation of Labour MP Rosie Cooper and Stratford and Urmston following the resignation of Kate Green, we spoke about it last week, to become Andy Burnham's deputy mayor. Um, that's three by-elections by where Labour will be hoping to retain their seats. Now, I think Chester is the most interesting one. It used to be a safe Conservative seat. Labour won it, turned a marginal into a relatively safe seat in 2019. I think the results of those three northern seats are going to send a really strong message to Rishi Sunak on the size of his job in the north if he is to win those red wall seats and with it, the next general election. What was your take yeah i think you're absolutely right i think Keir starmer will be absolutely devastated if labor don't retain all three seats with very very healthy majorities it's good to see a local government leaders like samantha dixon in chest the city of chester uh, she used to be the leader of chester council and andrew weston is the labor candidate in stretford and Urmston. he's currently the leader of trafford council and uh, the economic, no, the lead for transport in Andy Burnham's cabinet. So again, it's good to see people with local government experience getting into parliament. So that's two. Um, I'm not, and, and the candidate in, in West Lancashire, it, it doesn't come from that background, but uh, seems very credible and Labour should retain all three seats comfortably. Yeah, it's it's very hard to judge somebody's performance um, on on a TV snippet. You know, so I came to that not knowing any of the candidates as well. I mean, the city of Chester, seat was obviously that was where Giles Brandreth who I've met on several occasions lovely guy he was um, he, was he was the MP. MP for Chester from 92 to 97 that's right yeah that's yeah. right he speaks about it very amusingly doesn't he yeah he does he does he's, uh, he's died out on the it the people spoke 
he's, he's died out on it for sure. Um, now, when I was watching that um, on on uh, the BBC uh, North yesterday, and you would expect Chester to be a straight fight between Labour and the Tories. Traditionally, it was a Tory seat, then the Labour won it, of course, and they've increased their majority, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Elizabeth Wardlaw is representing the Tories. And how, did, Samantha- how did she do then? Do you like her? You, seem to, you like most Tories, don't you? <laughs> I've got to be honest, I thought she yeah. struggled. I thought she struggled, actually. I thought she looked incredibly nervous. People lose sight of how important communication is. And when she had her time to speak, she literally, she basically literally rattled off a load of small amounts of money that uh, the Conservative government were giving people who were struggling with the cost of living crisis. She looked, um, she just looked, uh, she looked nervous. And I thought Samantha Dixon, who uh, who is representing Labour, I mean, they're both councillors. They're both, um, you know, they're both steeped in local government. She came across as a lot more credible. A bit like you say, I would be surprised if, Labour don't win all three seats. I mean, it would be devastating given the fact, given the fact that the Conservatives are so far behind in the polls. Uh, I think the I think the Chester one is probably the most interesting because it's the the one that could most likely flip back to Labour. I think. Um, Sorry, because it's good to flip back to the Conservatives. I think what's interesting no is... No chance. No, no. Absolutely no chance. No, no, I don't think it will. But in comparison to West Lancashire and in comparison to Stratford and Elmstone, I can't see, um, you know, which, which, which for me are, are nailed on Labour. All nailed on Labour. Yeah. All three of them. Yeah. Absolutely. But, so... Um, Sorry, all I was going to say is that if you look at Chester, you know, they're taking it seriously. Lisa Nandy, the shadow levelling up minister, she's been out in force with the Samantha Dixon as well. So what I do think is obvious is that Labour aren't taking a win for granted. No, but it's also an opportunity to feel good and go out campaigning and um, and get the Labour message across. Yeah. Um, Have you ever been on that programme, by the way? BBC Politics yeah, Northwest. Yeah, I was on with... Have you? Um, yeah, uh, it was uh, Asif, wasn't it? Was it... Uh, Asif, uh, uh, Arif Ansari. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was on a couple of times actually. Um, I've not been, uh, I'm not been invited back, but but one lives in hope that uh, that will come. Well, I've, I've been on it, and it was absolutely fascinating experience. The two political combatants, and then obviously we, uh, people like us get asked on as like voice of business or whatever as a, a neutral journalist, which um, I was at the time. Um, <laughs> I was on with uh, Esther McVeigh and Hazel Blears. And Hazel Blair's absolutely mauled her. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was great television. <laughs> Did you have to sit on your hands and not shout and clap and applaud and stuff? <laughs> I had to sit in the middle of the two of them while they had a massive row. And Esther McVeigh completely lost it. It was hilarious. All I'd say with Esther McVeigh is that... And then, and then, and then I've been on, not on the programme, but working behind the scenes, working with a politician who has been on the programme. And it's quite nerve-wracking. I, I once contacted Esther McVeigh's office to try and get her to speak at an event right. and they never got back to me, <laughs> you know, and it's just one of those things that, that does, it, it does stick in the mind. Um, you know, she was in the inside of 42 under 42 when she was running some kind of media business that I put her in. Well, she, she, painful, out, she was um, painful to deal with. She came out last week though. And she said that, um, you know, she wouldn't support HS2. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, she, she, she's talking about, you know, she can't, um, she, you know, she can't welcome tax cuts because that's not conservative, uh, especially in the light of if they press ahead with high speed too, as well. It's been some interesting news in Liverpool this week. Yes, there has. Ian Byrne has won his reselection battle for Liverpool West Derby with the support, of course, of Metro Mayor Steve Rotherham and uh, and Andy Burnham, who's been out campaigning for him. It was a very narrow win, but uh, yeah, he, he's back in Parliament. So that's the that's only the second um, selection battle that the left of the Labour Party have won. Yeah, most of them have been going for. 
um, party-approved candidates. There's a fascinating Twitter account that Michael Crick, the journalist, ex-Channel 4 News and Newsnight political editor, has been doing about, it's called Tomorrow's MPs. Really interesting. It kind of forensically digs into these uh, selection battles and, uh, and who's likely to be winning them. Um, as you know, um, you do like a name drop. And, but I'm giving you permission to name drop because you took part in a round table last week that I think is really relevant. Yes, I did. So I took part in a round table that was at the Bonded Warehouse in Manchester and it was put together by an organisation called Codec and Katie Gallagher from Manchester Digital, who's a good friend of mine, she was there as well and I was um, supporting her. And Jonathan Reynolds, the MP for Staley Bridge and Hyde, Labour's Shadow Business Secretary, and Lucy Powell, the MP for Manchester Central, in whose constituency we were, and is Labour's Shadow Culture Secretary, they were there to listen to tech entrepreneurs. Really brilliant group of people. Um, you know, sometimes you can look around and think, God, the world's a really depressing place. The government has completely lost the plot. We're all going to hell in a handcart. But you listen to these people with amazing ideas, with such enthusiasm, and you know the way that they're tackling the issues that they've got in their businesses, be it short-term funding or lack of lab space. So it was great to see their ideas, but it was also really, really heartening to hear senior politicians who could be forming the next government listening. You know, more than anything, they were listening and engaging and thinking, how can we help people like this make this world a little bit better? I know one of the entrepreneurs who was on the panel was Jenny Johnson uh, from my first five years, tech entrepreneur. She's, uh, she's a good friend of mine, actually. Um, she speaks a lot of sense. She doesn't take any nonsense as well. Yeah, she's brilliant. She came up with a really great idea. It, it, it was kind of chat and mouse rules, so I shouldn't, shouldn't really say what the idea was, but it's something definitely that I remember Jonathan Reynolds going, that's brilliant. I want to talk further about this. But, but, but um, and I've said this before, that, that certainly under Jeremy Corbyn, you know, Labour Party seemed to hate the business uh, the community, but roundtables like that hint very strongly that they are trying to align themselves much closer to business and to be seen as a business party. Yeah, there's a great interview that Jonathan Reynolds has done in the Sunday Telegraph this weekend as well about the, um, it's, called, it's called the prawn cocktail circuit, but I think it's been called the smoked salmon circuit because mm. a lot of them have been breakfast meetings. Um, now, autumn statement and councils. Oof. Well, um, Councils have been told that they are now able to levy up to 5% increase in council tax without it going to a referendum. And in many ways, this is going to put the burden of another tax rise onto councils, many of whom will be Labour controlled rather than, uh, um, rather than uh, the Conservative government being seen to be putting the taxes up. But, um, and councils are, st are strapped, but it's not just council tax isn't the only form of revenue that they get. Um, there's all sorts of different cuts that they're facing. Some of them are down to the absolute bare bones and the words bankruptcies have been mentioned by councils, not just labour controlled ones in the urban north. You know, county councils like Northamptonshire have been to the absolute brink and I think we're in really perilous territory. You, you've been picking up the same thing from your local yeah. authority, haven't you? What we always try and do with the podcast, we always try, try and provide a bit of insight. And um, I hosted a round table on behalf of uh, Chorley and South Ribble Council, which is near to where I live. Right. And um, Councillor Alistair Bradley, who's the leader of the council, he's been in post for 10 years, talks a lot of sense as well. And um, he, we, we actually one of the issues we were talking about was the difficulty in recruiting staff. And it was in the third sector. So we talk a lot about... That's the voluntary sector. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk yeah. a lot about how the private sector is struggling to recruit people. And yet, um, if you work for a charity, you can't increase people's salaries by twofold. You can't offer 50% off at Tesco 
and they're finding it really, really difficult. But it's a fascinating conversation. But Alistair Bradley said afterwards, after the awesome statement, he was talking about the fact that he thinks, look, the solution isn't what's come up with, what, what the government have come up with. It should be about funding councils properly. Now, of course, he would say that. But the point he makes is this is just going to spread the unpopularity because um, surely, I think I'm right in saying, they haven't increased council tax to the maximum that they could have done um, very often in the last nine years. I think it's three of the last nine years they've increased it, they've increased it to the most that they could. So they're not a labor on council just increase council tax you know to the maximum level because they can um but but he was saying that it's going to increase the popularity it's going to spread it um Lancashire County Council have warned of considerable financial challenges the one that really caught my eye because um Liverpool Mayor Joanne Anderson's been very public about that she's warned of major cutbacks as they attempt to plug a 60 a 73 million pound black hole in their finances yeah she's described it as the biggest challenge that they face and she's laid the blame squarely at the feet of the conservative parties so I don't think we should be surprised at seeing, you know, significant 5% tax rises across the board. Well, a bit of incoming news on this, uh, Chris. Um, so last Thursday, it was my last um, full council meeting at Stockport Council, where I've been working for the last year. Um, I'm going on to be doing something new, which we'll talk about maybe in a future podcast when it's uh, appropriate to do so. But um, I'm sort of politically restricted in what I can talk about around Stockport. But what I can, I suppose, report is that there was some ding-dong in the council chamber because the Liberal Democrats, who are the largest party in a council that's under no overall control, did set out when they uh, started their control of the council back in, uh, in, in May that they had the aspiration to freeze council tax. And, of course, it was um, it was appropriate for the, for the Labour councillors on that, who I been working for um, to point out that that's in tatters now how can any council leadership legitimately claim that he can freeze council tax which services which which kids are going to go hungry which uh, care homes are going to have to close um, it, it's and, it, and I think it just proves the perilous na the parlous nature of local government finance yeah I hope what doesn't happen is that a wealthy local authority somewhere will freeze council tax and that will be held up as the exemplar of what can happen with yeah, that's happened before, efficient it? management. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm speaking to, to lots of local authorities. I'm not just talking to Labour local authorities or Conservative local authorities. It's a cost of peace and it's never been harder. And obviously, you know, the push for wage inflation is just going to grow and escalate and that's going to put more pressure on public finances as well. So, uh, no, I think it's... Uh, I think. I think local councils are, are going to find it really hard yep. and they already are. Anyway, it's time for a quick interval and we'll talk a little bit more later about the World Cup. Welcome back to Northern Spin, the final part. The part my wife calls the fun bit. I don't know if she speeds through the first two bits, but she likes the third section. This is the bit where you invariably, Michael, try and make me more northern. I'm trying. And we talk about things that are more creative, a bit more arty. I'd like to give a big shout out to a footballer who most people may not have heard of. She plays for Everton. She's called Izzy Christensen. She's withdrawn from her World Cup media duty. She does a lot of stuff as a pundit on BBC. She's excellent. She's 31, I think. She's played for the Lionesses 31 times. She's decided she can't uh, 
in all conscience, do what to support uh, the World Cup media duties because she would be condoning what's going on in Qatar. Right. So um, she was going to be on the BBC or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. was due to have, I think, she's due to be a pundit on three of the matches, but she's not going to do that now. Right. Um, at the weekend, I and we should say we're recording this on Monday. I noticed Gary Neville, who we've discussed a lot, he's been criticised for commentating on being sports. He's criticised. Uh, he criticised FIFA president Gianni Infantino. And I don't know if you heard his speech. I but, did. Yeah. Uh, Dreadful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he was absolutely horrendous. It was an hour long speech. It was a diatribe. And actually, in fairness to Gary Neville, he called it out yesterday, um, you know, when he was being interviewed. He's also retweeted a post about his Sky documentaries about Qatar, um, looking at all aspects of the creating of the World Cup. Yeah. Um, I think he must be aware of the criticism he's received. And I don't know what well, actually you're not watching the World Cup, but but Gary Lineker, when he did the intro yesterday, he basically made he, he was front and center saying, you know, these are the most controversial World Cups ever, you know, and, and he didn't try and sports wash what what you know this this event. I mean um it's difficult though, isn't it, for a broadcaster. You know, they they are there to provide context and insight as uh, as professional sports people who've performed at the highest level at World Cups about the spectacle that's going on. But they can't divorce themselves from the context of why this is happening in Qatar and uh, and what the experience is like and to reflect it. And I think it is a strange mood around it. Um, without question, there was the decision at the weekend that um, that they've already reneged on the deal with Budweiser, that they're not going to be selling beer. I mean, I'm not a drinker, so I have no particular strong opinions about getting leathered to watch football at international tournaments. But um, but it's a reverse ferret by by FIFA. And there's also some furore going on. I think our phones have been beeping while we've been recording this about the kind of armbands that players are wearing in protest to it. So there's clearly lots of negotiations going on behind the scenes with the with different football associations, with 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 teams about how they're going to be um, reacting to it. But it's a it's a tricky role for okay. for, for for broadcasters. But yeah. The one thing, Fair play uh, to Izzy Christensen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I thought was, um, I uh, Piers Morgan tweeted yesterday. Uh, I don't follow him, but sometimes people who I follow retweet it, and he says, "He's a serious uh, balloon, isn't yeah. he?" You know, he, he, he said, "Shame on the BBC for not uh, showing the uh, opening ceremony for the World Cup." And uh, and I responded by saying, "Look, I felt I don't believe in insulting people. I said, you know, I think you're uh, you're wrong again, Piers." I said, "The BBC aren't a mouthpiece." for FIFA and for the Qatari, um, you know, um, authorities. I said, um, I said they've got to be even handed. I don't blame, incidentally, the BBC uh, or, or ITV. I don't blame these organisations for covering the World Cup. They are essentially the BBC or a public service broadcaster. If they decided not to do it, that would be them finished. My objection with the point with Gary Neville is he's taking money from the Qatari authorities. Okay. Yeah. We, we, and in yeah, terms yeah. of the alcohol ban, incidentally, I respect that. Uh, I went to Dubai last year. You know, I respect their culture. I was going to I, ask you that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. By the same token, there are other aspects, you know, in terms of the whole approach to, um, you know, gay and lesbians, um, you know, and they're, they're absolutely, you know, it's the, if you're a Muslim, it, you can, I think I'm right in saying, I'm, I'm sure I'll be correct if I'm wrong, but you can get the death sentence, you know, for being homosexual in, in, uh, in Qatar. That's outrageous. I mean, um, you know, Leah Williamson, who's the Lionesses captain, she says she can't get excited by the World Cup, you know, because of that. And I walked through Manchester today for a point of record. We're filming this and recording it on Monday. I couldn't see one flag in Manchester, not one. Have you decided whether you're going to watch it yet or not? No, uh, so far, one game in, I've not watched it. 
and by accident I saw a tiny snippet at half time of Alan Shearer and Gary Lineker and Ashley Williams looking a little bit kind of awkward about about it but no I'm I'm sort of staying away from it so it's interesting you mentioned that you've been to Abu to Dubai on holiday I've I've never I've never bought into that whole kind of multicultural Arabism that I think that this is, is what this is all about. It's an attempt to sports wash, to kind of recognize that the oil's running out, recognize that these are very wealthy nations, but they want to be part of the global, of, glo of globalization, to, to project a very modern, inclusive image, to kind of create new industries and research in, in places like Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Qatar promote them as soft power players. Airlines is another example of that, of course, um, and a winter holiday destination, places that expats can go and work, friends of ours we know who we've worked with, lots of journalists go and do that couple of years working in, in the Gulf states to enjoy a tax-free life. Honestly, Chris, it leaves me cold. I've never wanted to go on holiday there. I've done a stop over there many, many years ago when it was basically an airport in the desert for refueling on the way to Australia. But I just... I just don't like that kind of very blingy, white-teethed, you know, shiny Dubai lifestyle. I don't... The tallest building... What's it like? The tallest building in the world is in Dubai, uh, Burj Khalifa, and it's, it's, it's incredible. It costs a fortune to get up to the top. And, but when you get, we got about halfway, you know, and paid to go on a viewing platform and we looked around and basically as far as you can see, it's desert, you know, and that's, it was a blank canvas that they built and they built these hugely impressive buildings um, and they are incredible. And I went with my wife and my two daughters and we reflected on Dubai and we thought it was amazing. We honestly, we thought it was amazing. I thought it was, I thought it was incredible. Um, it was far too hot for me, 45 degrees and uh, it got hotter, but there was this, this, this subculture that I didn't like. I didn't like the fact that every single taxi driver was a man. Um, I didn't like the fact that the, I was talking to non-Emirati, there's a, I think uh, one in four of the population are, are uh, Emirati. So that means they have to bring in a lot of uh, immigrant workers from countries around and uh, some of the tour guides and, and some of yeah. the tax. But it's like, a, it's like a two tier, tier immigration. On the one hand, you've got sort of white people from Western Europe um, doing professional jobs like journalism or whatever else. And then you've got, a second tier immigrant workforce, which is made up of extremely poor people from countries in sub-Saharan Africa or Nepal or Bangladesh, living in appalling conditions. I asked about, uh, I asked that question to, 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 to somebody who was, wasn't an Emirati and he, uh, I said, what was it like during COVID? And he said, we well, didn't get anything. We got nothing. Um, and he wasn't complaining because the one thing you can't do, incidentally, you can't criticise the leadership um, on social media, otherwise you're likely to end up uh, in, in prison. But um, well, speaking of in the prison, I um, there was actually when when I was standing for Parliament in 2015, there's a there's a situation where Parliament's dissolved, our MP had resigned, had retired, so there are no MPs, and there was this family who contacted me because their their husband was in jail in Dubai, and I had to get him out of jail. <laughs> We, we we did eventually. We had to um, worked with a, an organisation called Prisoners Abroad, and and we got him home eventually. Um, but he was a plane spotter, and he was accused of being a spy mm. just because he was going out looking at aeroplanes. And it does give you that sense that this is a very authoritarian state. And there was, there was an instance of an MP recently who was in Qatar for the World Cup, who was stopped by police and said, "Which one of these men that you are with is your husband?" And it's 
Mm, horrendous. Completely unacceptable. Horrendous. And I, I don't know, I feel really uncomfortable about going on holiday there, I must I say. I think everybody wants this World Cup to be over. Now, of yeah. course, if England win it, you know, we'll be the first person to say, fantastic. But 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 I think... I'm not sure I will. No, no. They I, won't win for a start. But. No, they won't. No, they won't. Um, but we'll see how they get on. Anyway, Chris, would you describe yourself as a fan of the arts? I go to the cinema um, occasionally, but no, in terms of when it comes to highbrow stuff, definitely not, but my wife is. Okay, so there's been a lot of coverage recently about the fact that the English National Opera could be leaving London and coming to somewhere like, <gasps> shock horror, Manchester. It sparked some furious headlines. In The Independent, for instance, don't send the English National Opera to Manchester. London needs it. The Independent whinged. English National Opera should move, but not all the way to Manchester, argued the Daily Telegraph. So arts, for, arts funding, as it happens, is being spread out or cut. This could be the uh, cover for cuts. And the London-dominated arts media are absolutely aghast, just as the media were, the media media were, when the BBC moved to Salford Keys. My good friend Joshy Herman from the Manchester Mill has got a great piece about this media snobbery on the Unheard website this week. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Joshy. Um, he's a top lad. Uh, I think it very much depends on how you shape the narrative. So clearly it's good for Manchester. Well, I mean, it feels like the um, Jenny Williams uh, love in here because she she made the same point but uh, that I'm going to make. But it does feel like some sort of uh, some sort of snobbery. We hear a lot about LinkedIn, uh, about levelling up, and people say levelling up's great, the concept's great. But at the moment you talk about taking something out of London and bringing it up to the north, people say, no, that's outrageous. I, 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 um, I, think, it's, I think it's a good move. It's a sensible move. Um, I think it's a, uh, a but, 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 but will it happen or not? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, my, my wife's going to the theatre tomorrow in Manchester and uh, she's dragged me along uh, once or twice as well. And there are some amazing performances and shows that take place in Manchester and also in Leeds and elsewhere. We shouldn't just think of ourselves as being Manchester centric. I think if you go to London, um, the idea that, 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 that the arts get subsidised, um, you know, I'm not sure that sits well. Um, I th it, it, it's part of a bigger issue, isn't it, about what, different nodes of ex nodes of importance there are across the country you go to a, a country like germany for instance and there'll be some somewhere like berlin is its historic capital and you go there and it's like seven shades of shoreditch surrounded by a little bit of buckingham palace and whitehall but then you go to hamburg munich you know these are all dusseldorf dortmund cologne these are all important cities with their own role to play in the german nation and if you go to America, you know, you've got the entertainment industry in California, you've got Silicon Valley, um, you've got the, the New, New York is like the center, you know, for Wall Street, for finance. In this country, all of those industries are concentrated on London. Mm. And it's not dispersed at all. It's no way is it any kind of federal country. We spoke earlier about Gordon Brown's constitutional review. It's been absolutely linked to the fact that this is um, about not only dispersing power, but dispersing wealth and dispersing opportunity. So your daughters can do what can full, can pursue their dreams wherever they live. They don't have to go on get on a train to London if they want to work in most of the key industries in this country. But we're not saying that they're going to take out the whole of the arts scene and no, move it up to Manchester. You can't. It's London. You, you're not. It's the West End. You know, it will always be the arts centre. But the idea of moving some of it and positioning it in Manchester can only be a good thing. But uh, hey, we've got through a lot of stuff today. We have. We, we always should do. And hopefully we've given some insight. When, when we start set up to do this podcast, we always said we want to give insight 
not just observation. That's a quick reminder that we've got a Northern Spin Extra podcast this week with the former Northern Powerhouse civil servant Nicola Headlam from Red Flag, chief economist there. We're also on Apple Podcasts, so please give us a five-star review. Tell your friends and family to give it a listen. Thank you, as ever, to our colleagues at What Media for producing and recording this podcast and to our sponsors, Oscar Technology. Also to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. His track, New Beginnings, is what you hear. Don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter, Northern underscore Spin 1. This has been Northern Spin. I'm Michael Taylor. And I'm Chris McGuire.